We return again this morning to our series on the atonement of Christ, which I have been calling O Perfect Redemption, in which we have been seeking an answer to the controversial question, for whom did Christ die? And after an introductory message that oriented us to the discussion, we had two sermons on God's design for the atonement. And in the first of those, we paid special attention to the unity of the persons of the Trinity. We said that because they share an identical nature, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share an identical will. And that means the persons of the Trinity have the exact same intention for the atonement. We can't have the Father aiming to save some and the, the, son, the Spirit aiming to save others and the Son aiming to still save still another group. Father has chosen some and not all. The Spirit regenerates some and not all, and therefore we found the, atone, the Son atones for those same some and not all. The persons of the Trinity are perfectly united in their intention for the atonement, to save the elect. In the second sermon on design, we looked into what that intention was. For what purpose has the Father sent the Son into the world? What does Scripture say that Christ has come into the world to do? And we found that the answer was the Scripture consistently and uniformly identifies the Trinity's unified intention for the atonement as exclusively salvific. 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to make sinners savable, not to make salvation possible or available, not to make provision for salvation, but actually to save sinners. And so we concluded, if God's intentions must certainly come to pass, and if his intention for the atonement is not to make provisions or possibilities, but actually to save, then all those for whom Christ died must certainly be saved. And since not all without exception are saved, Christ's atonement is particular and not universal. The extent of the atonement is a function of the intent of the atonement. But then we moved past the design of the atonement and into the nature of the atonement, into what Scripture says Christ actually accomplished by his death on the cross. And we found that Scripture speaks of Christ's death according to at least four themes or motifs, as we have been calling them, each of which correspond precisely to the various ways that our sin has broken the relationship between us and God. We had a sermon on each one of those motifs. Christ's atonement was a sacrifice that took away sin and guilt. It was a propitiation which satisfied the wrath of God that burned against us because of our sin. It was a work of reconciliation because it destroyed the ground of the enmity and hostility between God and men because of our sin. And it was a work of redemption by which we who were enslaved to sin and death were released from our bondage through the payment of the ransom price of Christ's own blood. And the argument has been, Scripture presents each of these motifs as inherently efficacious and particular. In every way that the Bible talks about Christ's atonement, it insists upon the fact that it perfectly accomplishes everything it sets out to do, and that it was accomplished on behalf of particular individuals whom God has chosen to save and not on behalf of all without exception. And that only makes sense when one considers the sobering reality that not all without exception are saved. As an expiatory sacrifice, Jesus' death actually takes away sin and guilt. But if not, all without exception, when all is said and done, actually have their sin and guilt taken away, it's self-evident that Jesus did not offer himself as an expiatory sacrifice for those. As a propitiation, the atonement actually satisfies the wrath of God. But if there are some people who suffer under God's wrath for eternity... 
as the just punishment for their sins, well, then it's plain that Jesus was not the propitiation for those people's sins. The efficacy of the atonement implies the particularity of the atonement. And we've seen how if you deny that the atonement is particular, you inevitably deny that the atonement is efficacious. If Christ redeemed all without exception from the curse of the law, but a great portion of those redeemed remain in bondage under the law for eternity, well, then Christ's redemption does not really redeem us from the curse of the law. Something has to be added to it to make that be so. And now, before you know it, this perfect redemption begins to look like a paltry redemption. Instead of accomplishing glorious achievements, it merely provides possibilities and opportunities. But the result of that is that the decisive, determinative cause of salvation is taken off the strong shoulders of the Savior and thrust back as a burden upon the sinner. As we read from J.I. Packer last week, the atonement gets redefined not as that by which God saves us, by that by which God enables us to save ourselves. When we universalize the extent of the atonement without universalizing the extent of salvation itself and saying that it brings everybody to heaven, we empty it of its power to save. When, we, when you universalize the extent of the atonement, you necessarily undermine the efficacy of the atonement. And so, a perfect redemption must be a particular redemption. If the atonement is an expiatory sacrifice, it must actually take sins away. If it is a propitiation, it must actually extinguish God's wrath. If it's a reconciliation, it must actually accomplish peace between God and men. And if it's a redemption, it must actually release the sinner from his bondage to sin. And we said it when we began to dig into the, uh, the nature of the atonement. But each of these motifs illustrates that Christ's atoning work was most fundamentally a work of penal substitution. That phrase means that on the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty for the sins of his people, penal, penalty, as a substitute for us instead of us. And in today's message, I want to dig into the atonement as a substitution. It's not quite that substitution is another motif alongside the other four. It is that expiation and propitiation and reconciliation and redemption are all fundamentally substitutionary categories. And that fact has much bearing on the question of the extent of the atonement as well. And so our sermon this morning will have three parts. First, we'll examine the atonement as penal substitution. Secondly, we'll consider the inherent efficacy of penal substitution. And third, we'll, we'll answer a significant objection against conceiving the, of the atonement as a truly efficacious substitution. So in the first place, let's consider Scripture's teaching of the atonement as a penal substitution. And as I said, all four of the previous motifs that we've studied have really just been iterations or instantiations or examples of penal substitution. Christ's sacrifice frees us, frees sinners from guilt because he bore that guilt in our place. In Isaiah 53, 4, Isaiah characterizes the suffering servant as the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has a grief that was not his, but was ours. He has sorrows that he should have never experienced, but experiences because we deserved to experience them. In verse 12, Isaiah calls the Messiah the one who bore the sin of many. You see, Jesus had sins, but they weren't his own sins. He had no sin, but he bore the sins of others. In verse 6 of Isaiah 53, it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, verse 11, He shall bear their iniquities. 
So bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, bore the sin of many. The iniquity of us all has been laid on him. He bears our iniquity. This is the language of a substitute paying and suffering the penalty of a people in their place. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then, quoting Isaiah's account of the suffering servant, he adds, For by his wounds you were healed. He had to be wounded for your healing. And then Isaiah 53, 5, the Lord Jesus bore the punishment of the sins of his people and thereby brought us blessing. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And so we see it clearly. This sacrifice is substitutionary sacrifice. Propitiation as well. Christ's blood effects the propitiation of God's wrath against sinners. It's because he bore that wrath in our place. Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Right? The curse of the law, which we were under because of our sin, was borne by Christ, who became a curse for us in our place, so that we would not have to fall under the judgments of that curse ourselves. The death of Christ reconciles God to man. How? By virtue of his own alienation and abandonment. It is because the Son was forsaken, as if he were a rebel that I, who am a rebel, can be received as a son. It's because he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me that we may cry out, Abba, Father. It is because he is abandoned to suffer outside the camp, Hebrews thirteen twelve, that we can be brought in to the fellowship of God's own dwelling place. And Christ's atonement redeems sinners from the bondage of our sin by submitting himself for a time to the bondage of death. That is the wages of sin. Hebrews 2.14 says that it is through death that he renders powerless the devil who had the power of death and frees those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Do you see? This is what was happening on the cross. Yes, a demonstration of God's love. Yes, a great example of how we are to live self-sacrificially. Yes, a conquest over the forces of darkness. But most fundamentally, Jesus saves his people from the penalty of our sins by becoming a substitute for us, paying that penalty in our place and on our behalf. The very heart of the gospel is the cross. And the very heart of the cross is penal substitutionary atonement. And so the New Testament is simply shot through with testimony to the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Christ has suffered in the place of his people so that we may go free. And often that substitution is indicated by prepositions, by those tiny little words that are often overlooked, but which are so mightily important. The Greek preposition anti, we would look at it and say anti, A-N-T-I, right, is a strong indicator of substitution. It literally means in the place of. You see that most clearly in places like Matthew 2.22, where it speaks of Archelaus reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. Anti his father, Herod. One king reigns in the place of another. Matthew 5.38 uses anti to translate the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which mandated what? That an offender be deprived of his eye or tooth in place of the eye or tooth of which he deprived someone else, an eye in the place of an eye. And Jesus uses that phrase with respect to his own death when he says in Matthew 20, 28, 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Anti Paulon, in the place of many. Which is to say, while sinners deserve to die because of their sin, Jesus laid down his life as the ransom price in the place of the lives of his people so that we might be freed. And then, while anti has the, the strongest connotations of substitution, there's another preposition, huper. It's its close second. You would spell it in English, H-U-P-E-R. And it means on behalf of. And it is by far the most common preposition to signify this substitutionary relationship between Christ and his people. You often see it in English as the term for, F-O-R. The body of Christ, Luke twenty-two nineteen, is given for you. Which is to say what? That, the, that Christ surrenders his body to be broken in the place of those who deserve to have their bodies broken because of sin. In John 6.51, he gives his body for the life of the world. In Mark 14.24, the blood of the new covenant is poured out for many. In Luke 22.20, it's poured out for you. That is to say, Christ's body and blood are given on behalf of sinners as a substitutionary sacrifice that averts the wrath and punishment that he endured from those who deserved to endure it. John 10, as the good shepherd, Jesus lays down his life for or on behalf of the sheep. Verses 11 and 15. He died... The shepherd dies because the sh- so that the sheep don't have to. He died, Romans 5, 6, and 8 says, for the ungodly, on behalf of the ungodly. He gave himself for his bride, the church, Ephesians 5, 25, which Paul describes both collectively for us, Ephesians 5, 2, and personally for me in Galatians 2, 20. On our behalf, he was made to be sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For us, he became a curse, Galatians 3.13. 1 Peter 3.18, the righteous one suffered the penalty of sin on behalf of the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. Once you see it, it's unmistakable. When you, notice, when you know to look for those little preposition words, they light up everywhere and you realize the air you breathe in Scripture is the doctrine of the vicarious suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. Penal substitutionary atonement is woven into the fabric of God's revelation from beginning to end because it is the very heart of the gospel message. It is, as one writer put it, the essence of the atonement. What did we sing even this morning? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Well, so much then for scripture's teaching on the atonement as penal substitution. In the second place, let's consider the efficacy of penal substitution. The efficacy of penal substitution. And just like with the four motifs of the atonement that illustrate and describe penal substitutionary atonement, the efficacious nature of substitution itself has great bearing on the question of the extent of that substitution. What do I mean by that? Well, To say that Christ died in the place of, or in the stead of, or as the substitute for sinners, is to say that he accomplished everything that divine justice required to save us. Everything. The guilt, the wrath, the alienation, the bondage that we would have had to endure for eternity. It's as if the Father gathered them all together and poured them into the cup which Revelation 14.10 calls the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. 
which Revelation 16:19 calls the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And he handed, he pours all of that into the cup, and then he hands that cup to his beloved son. And in Gethsemane, the son, as it were, held that dreadful cup in his hands and, and looked into that cup, and he saw what it would mean to drink it. And the thought of it bowed him to the dust in the garden, and he begged his father, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Oh, father, if there's any other way. And he heard silence. And he prayed a second time. And he prayed a third time. And he heard nothing. And so he resolved, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he got up and he marched to Golgotha and he drank every last drop of that cup filled with all the bitterness of hell itself until all was accomplished, until he cried out in victory, it is finished. We sang that before. It is finished was his cry. Not, oh, it's too much. Here's a good beginning. But it is finished. We've quoted it before, but it's too good not to repeat. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. And that is the point of substitution, that Jesus drains the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to drink for His people, for He has drank it up. J.I. Packer has a famous article from the 1970s called, What Did the Cross Achieve? And he puts it this way, in that article, he says, this means that no such suffering, no God-forsakenness, no dereliction should remain for us. What Christ bore on the cross was the God-forsakenness of penal judgment, which we shall never have to bear because he accepted it in our place. Praise God for substitutionary atonement. Those for whom Christ died can never experience the punishment which he bore in our place. As John Owen puts it, for no other reason in the world can be assigned why Christ should undergo anything in another's stead, but that that other might be freed from undergoing that which he underwent for him. This is just what substitution means. The substitute suffers so that the ones he's substituting for don't have to. But what implications does that have for the extent of the atonement? If Christ's death is truly an efficacious substitution, as Scripture plainly teaches, then no one for whom he died can ever undergo the punishment that Christ bore in their place. That's the gospel. That's good news. But because many do undergo that punishment, indeed, because there were many who were undergoing that punishment as Christ was undergoing His punishment on the cross, we cannot say that Jesus died as a substitutionary atonement for all without exception. And yet, inexplicably, this is precisely what those who deny particular redemption say happened. Bruce Ware writes this, quote, Those in hell who never put their faith in Christ and so were never saved are un and are under the just judgment of God for their sin, even though Christ has paid the penalty for their sin. What? This simply cannot happen. It's to equivocate on the meaning of substitution to suggest that both the substitute and those he dies for experience death. 
As one writer put it, a man may die in the hope of helping others, but he is not their substitute if they die the death he had hoped to save them from. If Jesus endured the wrath of God in the place of those who will eventually suffer it themselves, he may have been something, but he was not their substitute. He was their fellow sufferer. A substitute acts in order to relieve another man of his obligation. It is not a substitution if the so-called substitute acts and the other man's obligation remains. A friend of mine gives a helpful illustration in the context uh, in which we most often think of substitution today, namely sports. He says if a player on a sports team enters the field of play for a particular position and the player already on the field in that position leaves the field of play, well, then you've got a substitution. But if both players are on the field for the same position at the same time, that is not a substitution. If on the cross, Jesus is suffering the wrath of God against the sins of Esau or Jezebel, who were in hell at that moment, suffering the wrath of God for the very same sins, that's not substitution. It's parallel punishment. And not only is it not substitution, it's double jeopardy. How could God be just in punishing the same sins twice in the suffering of two different people? How could his holiness be satisfied with the offering of his son as a substitutionary punishment on the one hand and on the other hand execute upon the sinner the very punishment that Christ is is said to have discharged? You say, well, because they rejected it. They didn't believe in it. Excuse me, is rejection and unbelief a sin? Was Christ the substitute for that sin? What's the problem? Either he is the substitute for all sins but one, and so not a substitution for all sins, or he is not the substitution for all people. Back to J.I. Packer, who says in this article, any who take this position of universal atonement must redefine substitution in imprecise terms, if indeed they don't drop the term altogether, for they are committing themselves to deny that Christ's vicarious sacrifice ensures anyone's salvation. If we're going to affirm penal substitution, he says, for all without exception, we must either infer universal salvation or else to evade this inference, deny the saving efficacy of the substitution for anyone. And if we're going to affirm penal substitution as an effective saving act of God, we must either infer universal salvation, or else to evade this inference, restrict the scope of substitution, making it a substitution for some and not all. If the nature of Christ's atonement was a penal substitutionary sacrifice, then the extent of the atonement is limited to those who do not experience the punishment for which Christ offered himself as a substitute. So can I put it plainly? You can have either penal substitutionary atonement or universal atonement. You cannot have both. And since Scripture is just saturated with the doctrine of penal substitution, we are shut up to conclude that Jesus' penal substitutionary atonement was a particular atonement. What did I say before? The heart of the gospel is the cross, and the heart of the cross is penal substitution. And yet, for the, for penal, for the atonement to be a genuinely penal substitution, it must be a particular substitution. Now, in response to that sort of argumentation, the advocates of universal atonement raise an objection. They say, look, you particularists, you like to make a big deal out of what you call the efficacy of the atonement, that the cross actually saves and and doesn't just provide the potential for salvation. But you don't really believe that the cross actually saves sinners because you acknowledge that even the elect who you say were saved by Christ's cross work 
are born into this world as sinners. You say that if Jesus' death is a genuine propitiation, well, then God's wrath is perfectly satisfied on behalf of those for whom Jesus died when he died. But you agree with what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that even the elect on whose behalf Jesus efficaciously satisfied the wrath of God in the first century, even the elect come into this world dead in their trespasses and sins and are by nature children of wrath. John says, or Jesus says, well, actually there's debate over whether it's John or Jesus talking in John 3, 36, but one of them says, the Holy Spirit says, the wrath of God abides on the one who doesn't obediently confess faith in him. But the elect don't come into the world believing in Jesus. And so you say that Jesus efficaciously satisfied the wrath of God on their behalf, but Jesus says the wrath of God abides on them. So you particularists, you say you believe in an efficacious atonement, but you don't. You believe the atonement is ineffectual until a person believes, just like we do. Or else you would be saying that people can be saved without faith. Now that's an objection that needs a response. And there are several things to say in response to it. The first is to say, yes, it is true that particularists do believe that all people, even the elect, come into the world dead in their trespasses and sins and under the threat of the wrath of God. It, we do not believe that the elect are regenerated or justified or adopted on the cross before they ever existed and before they even committed the sins from which they need to be saved. We do not believe that people can be saved without faith, and so there is agreement there. However, we do need to grapple with the fact that Scripture does say that the cross actually saves and not just that it makes us savable until we have faith, which is when we're really saved. All of the motifs of penal substitution are said to be accomplished by Christ's death and not just provided for. I'm going to run through them again really quickly. Sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26 says Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So sin is actually put away by Christ's sacrificial death, which happened 2,000 years ago, not when each sinner believes. We, we don't say Christ dies every time a new sinner believes. That's closer to the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation than to the Protestant doctrine of, of, of the atonement, to the biblical doctrine of the atonement. Propitiation. Romans 3.25 says that God displayed Christ as a propitiation by his blood. So Christ satisfies the wrath of God by shedding his blood in his death. Yes, that propitiation is to be received through faith, which is what the next phrase says, but it is accomplished by blood. Reconciliation. Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Yes, we receive the reconciliation through faith, Romans 5.11, but it's Christ's death that reconciles us. And then redemption Hebrews 9.15 says, A death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, We were redeemed with precious blood, the blood of Christ. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And when did he become that curse? Again, not every moment a new sinner exercises saving faith, as if, oh, I believed, okay, slam another nail, no, when he died on the cross once for all. So the point is, Scripture says that the elect are redeemed when Christ died, not merely when they appropriate the so-called provisions of his death by faith. And so I understand the difficulty. How can you say wrath is satisfied on the cross, but wrath still abides on them when they enter the world? How can you say the slave is freed from bondage by the cross, but then comes into the world a slave to sin? But the first response is to say, look, however we explain it, that is how Scripture speaks. That is how Scripture casts the atonement of Christ. 
It does not speak about the cross the way proponents of a universal atonement speak about it. Listen to some of these comments from those making this objection. William Shedd says, listen to this, atonement in and by itself, separate from faith, saves no soul. Christ might have died precisely as he did, but if no one believed in him, he would have died in vain. It is only when the death of Christ has actually been confided in or believed in as atonement that it is completely set forth as God's propitiation for sin. Now, not only is that a frightening thing to say, it is expressly contrary to what we just read in Romans 3.25, namely that propitiation consists in the shedding of Christ's blood, not in the sinner's faith in that blood, and that God set forth Christ as a propitiation on the cross, not repeatedly at the conversion of each individual sinner. To say that it's not completely set forth as God's propitiation until it's confided in is to make faith that which satisfies the wrath of God rather than Christ. Here's another one from Moise Amaro, the 17th century theologian from which Amaraldianism derives its name. Some of you might have heard that term. He writes, This will to render the grace of salvation universal and common to all human beings is so conditional that without the fulfillment of the condition, it is entirely inefficacious. Okay. Arminian theologian Robert Piccirilli says he objects to the notion that, quote, propitiation or reconciliation were actually finished on the cross. It is finished? I I don't know. Southern Baptist professor of theology, John Hammett, uh, asserts that, quote, propitiation and all Christ did on the cross, though provided to all, remains of no value, ineffectual, useless, until subjectively appropriated. I can't even imagine writing those sentences. And then Bruce Ware asks with exasperation, how can it be said of the death of Christ in itself that by his death alone he saved those for whom he died? He goes on, we cannot speak correctly of Christ's death as actually and certainly saving the elect. No, even here the payment renders their salvation possible while it, it seems natural, or, or, sorry, where, while it becomes natural only upon their exercising saving faith. And so he asks, how can we say that Christ's death in itself saves those for whom he died? Because that's exactly what Scripture says. Repeatedly and consistently, it locates the saving efficacy of the atonement in the death of Christ itself and not in the sinner's faith. But aren't those startling comments? I mean, when your interpretation of any given passage or set of passages of Scripture starts requiring you to say things like the cross was useless and saves no one in and of itself, it's like we say, it's like I say in class, stop, step away from the stupid statement. Change course. And is that not precisely what Packer said would happen in the 1970s? that in order to universalize the extent of the atonement, we have to deprecate the atonement we were previously extolling and say that our faith is the determinative cause of our salvation. Herman Bovink put it this way even earlier than uh, Packer. He said, the center of gravity has been shifted from Christ and located in the Christian. Faith is the true reconciliation with God. And he's right about that. I mean, Piccarelli basically says, no, I, I object to the notion that reconciliation is finished on the cross. What's that mean? Faith finishes reconciliation. But okay, so one, Scripture speaks the way that they say that we can't speak. Two, how do we solve the difficulty? How can Scripture say the cross efficaciously saves the elect, but that the elect come into the world unsaved? And aren't saved until they believe. Well, it's because Scripture speaks of being saved in different senses. We must recognize a crucial distinction in this discussion. 
And it's the distinction between redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Redemption was accomplished on the cross. It is finished. Everything that was required for our salvation was finished by Christ on the cross. But all of the saving blessings that the death of Christ accomplished on the cross are nevertheless not applied to the sinner until God regenerates him and grants him repentance and faith. There is a distinction between redemption accomplished and redemption applied, between having the right to the saving blessings that have been secured for you and actually coming into possession of those saving blessings. So, so crucial to understand. The cross actually accomplished the satisfaction of God's wrath. Again, propitiation is said to have been made in Christ's blood, Romans 3.25, which was spilled once for all in the first century. And as a result, every person for whom Christ died obtained the right to have the wrath of God removed from him. It is removed in principle. The atonement secured. It made infallibly certain and definite that everyone for whom Christ died would come into possession of every blessing that he purchased for them. However, God in his wisdom has decreed that his people do not come into possession of what is their right immediately upon its being secured. And I think we understand that. A grandfather bequeaths a classic sports car to his grandson upon the grandfather's death, but he leaves it in a trust until the boy turns 21. When the grandfather dies, the car is his grandson's, but the boy doesn't come into possession of it until he turns 21. He has the legal right to it. If anyone was to attempt to take it from him, they would be prosecuted for theft. But though he has the right to it, he doesn't come into possession of it immediately. So also, the cross secures the elect's absolute right to expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption, even though it does not put them into possession of those benefits until they are applied. But here's the kicker. Listen carefully. The delay of time between the accomplishment and the application does not render the accomplishment ineffectual or its application any less inevitable. I'm going to say it again. The delay of time between the accomplishment and the application does not render the accomplishment ineffectual or its application the less inevitable. Application always follows accomplishment, even if it's separated by years. The time gap between the grandfather's death and the grandson's 21st birthday does not make the car any less his by right, nor does it introduce any uncertainty or possibility or provisionality about whether he actually will come into possession of it. Listen to John Owen explain this. He says, Christ did actually, or ipso facto, Deliver us from the curse by being made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. And the handwriting that was against us, even the whole obligation was taken out of the way and nailed to his cross, Colossians 2.14. It is true, all for whom he did this do not instantly apprehend and perceive it, which is impossible because we don't exist yet. But yet that hinders not, but that they have all the fruits of his death in actual right though not in possession, which they cannot have until at least be made known to them. As if, and then Owen gives an illustration, as if a man pay a ransom for a prisoner detained in a foreign country, the very day of the payment and acceptation of it, the prisoner has right to his liberty, although he can't enjoy it until such time as tidings of it are brought unto him and a warrant produced for his delivery." And consider that illustration. That was very helpful for me as I studied this issue a while back and came to a firm conviction. Imagine there's a prisoner whose death sentence had been carried out on a willing substitute a week earlier, all in strict accordance with the law of the land. 
And the governor, having received word of a sufficient substitutionary payment on the prisoner's behalf, signs his name to the paperwork ordering this man's release. The governor is the chief executive officer in the state. The moment he signs that form, the prisoner is free. His freedom has been absolutely secured. There is nothing conditional or provisional or potential about it. But it takes time for the paperwork to be processed. The governor's envoy has to take that signed pardon slip from the governor's mansion to the prison. He's got to go from the entrance up into the warden's office. The warden has to sign off. Officers have to travel down to the man's cell. They have to escort him from the prison grounds to the outside. And then and only then can we say that the man has come into possession of the freedom that was his by virtue of the stroke of the governor's pen and the substitute's sacrifice. But the gap of time between the governor's accomplishment of his freedom by signing that paper and the application of the man's freedom by his exiting of the prison does not make the governor's signature any less effectual. Try telling the governor that. Glad you signed this. That makes it possible for him to be released. Excuse me, what? It makes it, I've just released him. Don't tell me that I've provided for it. I've done it doesn't mean that the governor only provided for the prisoner's freedom. It doesn't mean that the prisoner's release was merely provisional. His release was not merely provided for or made possible. It was rendered certain, even though it wasn't applied immediately. Well, in the same way, the cross has purchased the right of our redemption so that we are redeemed in principle, though we do not enjoy the possession of that until it is applied through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But Scripture still calls the purchasing of the right of redemption, redemption. It calls the securing of propitiation, propitiation. And that means we need to submit our thinking and our language to Scripture rather than embrace errant doctrines based upon our erroneous deductions. So you say, So an elect person has had the wrath of God satisfied on his behalf on the cross, but until he comes to faith, quote, the wrath of God abides on him, John 3, 36. How does that work? Well, in light of what we've just spoken about, we have to distinguish between the divine sentence of wrath on the one hand and the actual enduring of that wrath in the execution of that sentence. When Jesus says the wrath of God presently abides on unbelievers, he doesn't mean that there's no difference in the way that the wrath of God abides on them versus the way God's wrath is being poured out on those who are suffering in hell. The only sense in which unbelievers are under divine wrath before they die is that that wrath will certainly come upon them if they do not trust in Christ alone before they die. But in the case of the elect, that's an impossibility because the Father's election and the Son's atonement ensure that the Holy Spirit will regenerate them and grant them saving faith. On the other hand, those who are already suffering for their sins in hell are under divine wrath in an entirely different sense. In the former case, wrath is threatened. In the latter case, it's become a reality. If we return to our death row prisoner illustration, the execution of That man's death sentence was carried out upon a willing substitute a week earlier. And the governor's pardon made it certain that that sentence could never be executed upon him. But in the intervening time between the execution of the substitute and the hour of the man's release, the prisoner remained on death row under the sentence of the death penalty. Even during that intervening period, we could have said the sentence of death abides upon him even though its execution had already been counted or carried out on a substitute. Similarly, the execution of our death sentence has already been carried out upon our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. But the gap of time between the accomplishment of that redemption and its application to us doesn't make it any less proper to refer to our bondage in sin as genuine bondage. Nor does it mean that our redemption was any more provisional or any less certain. We see a biblical illustration of that in Paul's comments concerning Israel in Romans 11, 28 and 29. He tells the believers in the church of Rome, from the standpoint of the gospel, 
They, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He's saying that because the unbelieving nation of Israel currently rejects the gospel, they're considered the enemies of the followers of Christ. Nevertheless, because God has chosen them from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. God's wrath abides on them in the sense that it threatens to break upon them if they fail to repent. And yet love abides on them as well. These on whom the wrath of God abides are called beloved even before they have come to faith in Christ because that love has ensured that they will come to faith in Christ. And the point is, again, that does not make God's choice of them any less effectual unto their salvation. There is simply a time delay between the election that renders their salvation certain and their possession of that salvation. This doesn't make faith unnecessary. Faith is the very means by which sinners lay hold of all of this. That faith is given as a gift by God through the atoning work of Christ. Not only does the death of Christ and the, and the efficacy of the death of Christ on the cross not make faith unnecessary, the death of Christ on the cross purchases saving faith. It makes saving faith certain because it purchases faith for all those whom the Father has chosen. This, dear people, is the essence of penal substitution. And inherent to the doctrine of penal substitution is that it is efficacious. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 as we close. Isaiah 53, where we, we were before, and it is just sort of the locus classicus for penal substitution. The servant song of Isaiah 53 actually starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13. The father speaks of the son who will come and accomplish atonement. And he says, behold, my servant will prosper. And prosper translates the Hebrew word sakal, which when used in the stem that it's used here means to succeed in battle. It's the same term that's used in Joshua 1, 7, and 8, where God charges Joshua to be strong and courageous, to obey the law that Moses gave, quote, so that you may have success wherever you go. And so the New English translation translates Isaiah 52, 13 rightly. My servant will succeed. That's the beginning of the story. Whatever the son is coming to do, he's going to succeed. And you know, if you look at the end of the story, we come to John 19.30, which we've spoken of already, and we find Christ's own announcement of success. It is finished. And so Old Testament scholar Alec Motier says of these bookends, he says, if the work of Christ only made salvation possible rather than actually secured salvation, then finished only means started. And succeed only means maybe at some future date and contingent upon the contribution of others. Finished is no longer finished, he says, and success is no longer a guaranteed result. This is far from both the impression and the actual terms of Isaiah's forecast. And yet, what do we see in Isaiah 53? Those who failed to esteem Messiah for who he was in verses 3 and 4 were healed based on nothing but the substitutionary atonement of the servant. Look at verse 5. Well, verse, look at end of verse 4. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We thought he was cursed. We thought he was, we thought wrongly about this suffering servant. We were unbelieving. And then with no comment about conditions or faith or provisions, we see in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, not by our faith in his scourging, by his scourging, we are healed. 
He was not potentially pierced. He was not provisionally crushed. His chastening did not bring about a potential peace, nor his wounds a provisional healing. No, Christ was actually crushed. He actually bore our sins in his body on the cross. His wounds did not make us healable. His wounds did not put us into a state in which we might be healed if we activate the hypothetically universal scope of Christ's wounds No, by his wounds, we are healed. His death actually accomplished the spiritual healing of those for whom he died. And that is all our hope. Of course, we must believe it. That is the means that God has ordained for us to lay hold of it. But that believing is the gift of God. It is not the ground of our atonement. Christ alone is the ground Turn to John 17. It is in this efficacy that the glory of Christ's atonement consists. John 17 and verse 4, in his high priestly prayer to the Father, Christ tells the Father, I glorified you on the earth. Really, what did you do, son, that you glorified me? I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What makes the Son's work glorifying to the Father is that it was a work of accomplishment and not a work of mere provision. The cross did not purchase possibilities or create opportunities. It accomplished certainties. It didn't make sinners savable. It saved his people. The glory of the atonement is the glory of its perfect efficacy. And so Packer says, Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, a mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly believe, but a real salvation for his own chosen people. His precious blood really does save us all. The intended effects of his self-offering do in fact follow just because the cross was what it was. Its saving power doesn't depend on faith being added to it. Its saving power is such that faith flows from it. The cross secured the full salvation for all for whom Christ died. And so we sing, oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. Now let me close with the words of Spurgeon, because this is too good for me not to say. That would be a good ending spot, just a, a quote from Spurgeon. He says, some say that all men are Christ's by purchase. But beloved, you and I do not believe in a sham redemption which does not redeem. We do not believe in a universal redemption which extends even to those who were in hell before the Savior died and which includes the fallen angels as well as unrepentant men. Elsewhere, Spurgeon says, not one drop of Jesus' blood-bought ones was ever lost yet. Howl. Howl, O hell, but howl you cannot over the damnation of a redeemed soul. Out with the horrid doctrine that men are bought with blood and yet are damned. It is too diabolical for me to believe. What, did Christ at one tremendous draft of love drink my damnation dry, and shall I be damned after that? God forbid. What, shall God be unrighteous to forget the Redeemer's work for us and let the Savior's blood be shed in vain? Spurgeon says, not hell itself has ever indulged the thought. And then one more. Unless God can undeify himself, every soul that Christ died for, he will have. Every soul for which he stood as a substitute and surety, he demands to have, and each of those souls he must have, for the covenant stands fast. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we rejoice in that truth, that the covenant stands fast, that your compact of grace toward us shall never die. The ink will never fade away. The blood of the dear dying lamb shall never lose its power. Father, help us who find all of our hope and solace in the efficacy of Christ's blood. Think consistently about the extent of that blood so that we don't say things about the extent of it that cause us to undermine the efficacy of it. 
and cut out from under us the great hope of the gospel, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the grace that was granted to us, 2 Timothy 1.9, in Christ Jesus before the worlds began. We thank you, O Son, in whom we have redemption through your blood in the fullness of time. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for granting the gifts of repentance and faith that were purchased by the Son to those of us in the fullness of time as we come to faith through your sovereign hand. Help us think rightly and so worship rightly. Help us to see the beauty of the atonement in all these folds and and intricacies. It is where we would love, love to remain and consider and meditate and reflect upon. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.